This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Canadians might not know enough about Canadian military history. Canadian military historian Tim Cook shares stories of Canadian bravery through all kinds of different wars and why we need to remember all of this. Plus, what is the most impactful artifact at the Canadian Military Museum? Well, Mr. Cook shares what it is, and it is not massive. It's actually quite small and sentimental. Why are the bagpipes such an important part of Remembrance Day and ceremonies in general? Michael Gray, president of the Pipers and Pipe Band Society of Ontario, dives into the history of the bagpipes, why it's used for ceremonies, and some amazing things that you probably didn't know about the Scottish pipes too. Pretty interesting stuff. On the Shift AV Club, we talked about war movies, Saving Private Ryan in particular. We had Steve Stebbing on the show, our larger discussion around patriotism, courage, and so much more as our takeaways from watching the movie on the Shift AV Club. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, the Shift AV Club, we grab a film, we all watch it, we talk about it. 877-399-9898, you are welcome to contribute as well. And we do have an extended segment with all of this uh, beyond our normal one, so it should be fun as we continue the conversation. We have Steve Stebbing here, Brendan Kelly, Ryan O'Donnell, everybody. Ryan, take it away and get us started with the AV Club. My pleasure. Yes, every uh, other week, my friends, we gather here and we watch a movie all together. The Tiny Wheel is brought out of its storage room and has a bunch of different movies on it. The wheel is spun and we get a movie to watch. The theme uh, was Remembrance, was military movies uh, to kick off Remembrance Day. And it landed on Saving Private Ryan, an absolute classic. Let's, uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, Brendan, if you would do the honors and please bring out the tiny wheel. The tiny wheel actually does have movies. It's so cute. No one seems to mind. Here it is. Here we are. Let's talk about Saving Private Ryan. Should I go first? Oh, we don't have okay. a trailer. No, so uh, yeah. I thought we'd no, have a I, I wanted to give us as much time as possible to talk about this movie. Uh, also, oh. every trailer sounds the exact same for this movie because yeah, it was true. made in 1998. Yeah, uh, you go ahead. This, Take it. This is a very important movie, 100. Uh, percent I mean, it redefined how people make action movies. Uh, this is one of the first movies to use saturation as much as it did, uh, which works so well for the gritty nature. Uh, it does an amazing job of painting how horrible World War II is, not really glorifying it, but showing just how truly shocking it is. Uh, the violence is grotesque, but not for the sake of being grotesque. It's just because it was. Uh, my only gripe, which we'll get a little bit more into uh, after the break, is that is the very, very end of this movie and the shot of the American flag at the end because it's a very weird patriotic sentiment and I don't think this movie is patriotic at all and it felt hmm. very weird. This movie is not about the United States winning the war. This movie is about soldiers. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's my only complaint with this entire movie actually. Hmm. And that's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that. Um, I, I don't, I, you have to watch the American propaganda machine. Everything's an yeah. American wins the war movie. If it comes out of America, it's almost like it's an unwritten rule. So um, that's just, I think that's just the way it is. My opinion changed when I went to Pearl Harbor and I watched the 
the stories of Pearl Harbor, when they show you in the theater at Pearl Harbor, you realize very quickly, like, oh, yeah, there's there's a very thin line of the stories that you're being told here. And it's it's like the, the good marketing of the of the war, not necessarily the confusion. And for me, it was it was chaos. And when, when you looked at the very beginning of the movie, the chaos off the beginning is mind blowing. The chaos at the end is mind blowing, and they create these moments of chaos all the way through the entire Saving Private Ryan. The biggest part of the show that is so creatively written in my perspective is you don't, you still don't know which soldier they're actually talking about until the very end. You don't know who it's about. And if it's about um, the sergeant or if it's about Ryan, you don't know who that character, the old man is. And after you watch it once, you kind of go, oh, yeah, it makes sense. But you really, truly don't. Uh, Brendan Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, as I said off the top of the show, it made me think generationally um, how this, uh, how we are, uh, how we do feel removed. I feel so far removed from um, that generation. And it really, I think at this age, it made me made me really think of that and ponder that, that, uh, you know, that generation lived through something so awful like World War II. Um, and the production of this movie, um, visually, uh, I still think really stands up to this day and really um, uh, gets the, the, the visualization of the chaos that you were saying. I think they use something uh, called a shortened exposure, which gives like a, a strobing effect on a lot of the action scenes, which really adds to the, the grittiness of it. That's became somewhat of an overused effect into the 2000s, but uh, mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan was one of the first movies to do that. Yeah. Uh, text comes in, Trucker Kevin. Love this movie. I can watch it again and again. Denise says, I watched it for the first time. I, f- I was kind of disappointed. I was expecting more. Steve Stebbing, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. I mean, this movie is super special as far as like thematically and, and brotherhood wise, as, and the kind of instant brotherhood um, uh, that this, this squad goes through. Um, but beyond that, cinematically, I, I mean, this this movie is kind of masterful in storytelling, especially in, in engaging its audience and making an experience by starting the movie off with that D-Day scene and, and, and fully bringing you into the, like you said, the chaos of everything and then branching off with this kind of side character thing that becomes your main vein of the film is so it, it's such an interesting way to approach a war story a a war film because there's so many there's so many different war stories to be told uh so to kind of get your connection into it i think uh spielberg did just a phenomenal job really earned those five academy awards that it got out of 11 nominations there's the line at the end where they're in the cemetery and the old man says to his wife he says tell me i've earned it tell me i've been a good man or something like that and to me, that's where it truly hits home. It truly hits home when every one of us looks at our partner at the end of a hard day or a parenting day or a work day or whatever, and you just say, or even if you just went out socially with another couple, you always will look at their partner and say, how did I do? Tell me I did a good job. I worked really hard to be here. Tell me I've earned this, right? And that is such a real moment for me, and I can only imagine the uh, gravity of that particular moment. A couple of text messages came in. I'm going to start with that, guys, and then we'll continue with the conversation. I think it leads us there. Um, I remember when the movie came out in the theaters and the emotions it brought out in the older men in the theaters and the amount of tears I saw. That's from John. That's incredibly um, important to note, too. 
Um, Denise says, I just thought there would have been more of a story to it. I felt like it was a bit confusing and left me with questions. And Denise, I totally get that because when you watch that movie for the first time, it can be so shocking that you don't actually follow the storyline. Now, Steve, the, the supporting cast is so good. Expanding the supporting cast part as you watch it again and again, you realize how valuable all those characters mm-hmm. are. Absolutely, yeah. Because I, I, I was just saying that, uh, like you, when you first watch it, uh, you know, Hanks comes through most, and I, I think Barry Pepper uh, as, as the sniper comes through quite a bit. But it, yeah, it's really how well rounded and how each character feels like a different type. Like if you're looking at Vin Diesel's character, uh, Giovanni Ribisi's character, or even uh, Jeremy Davies playing the interpreter, um, just how they kind of round out the different archetypes to to for uh, to, to form this this special squad that's been made um they're like the low-key mvps of the film oh it's absolutely true and um now there is some there is some humor in the show there's some really funny parts of the show too mm-hmm. some amazing acting uh giovanni Ribisi, the medic his performance is amazing you're shocked when they walk up and ted danson walks up right and then you're like, oh, it's Ted Danson's in this movie, right? Uh, Paul Giamatti's in there. Right. And this, this brings me to the other point where Bill says, I don't understand how you can say it's not a patriotic movie. And this is where I agree with Ryan. It's not a patriotic movie because of, you know, uh, Ted Danson's character, Paul Giamatti's character, all of these people, all of these characters complain about why they're there. They don't want to be there. They don't believe in the government's decisions. They don't, they think the government's dragging their feet. They make uh, repeated comments about personal agendas of other soldiers and uh, hot top brass doing what they want to do. Um, Tom Sizemore is in it and he, they all, what's the griping? They talk about griping. We gripe up, we don't gripe down. And, but they all bitch and complain about the, the, the powers that be making bad decisions. The only thing that they talk about, all of them, is that line, if this gets me closer to being home with my wife, then let's do it. They're not there for the government at that point. They're only there for each other and to go home. And so that's, Bill, why I understand what Ryan says about it not being a patriotic movie. The brotherhood part, absolutely. And I do have to say this one thing, though. If Ryan O'Donnell ever went to war, I feel like he'd be like up him. I'd be what? I think you'd be just like you'd be just like the character Upham. Oh yeah, of course that's me. That's I'm totally Ryan O'Donnell right there. Represent me. Yeah, that's hundred <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, just to go back to the patriotism thing, I think you could take the story of saving Private Ryan and apply it to any Allied army that fought during World War II, and it would work. This movie had nothing to do with the fact that they're Americans. It had everything to do with the fact that they were soldiers. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's plenty of war movies that are very American. Uh, Patton, uh, American Sniper, uh, even Flags of Our Fathers, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it just felt that's my only complaint is the movie right at the end, the, sh- the camera zooms in on Tom Hanks's character's grave, and the music actually starts to fade. And if that was the end, the idea this movie was about the sacrifice of soldiers, that's perfect. And then the music mm-hmm. fades back up, and then it fades to American flag, and then it ends. And that's where I was like, well, I don't think you needed that. You're right, though. The American propaganda machine is alive and well, and I understand from a marketing standpoint it makes sense. Um, But that's my only complaint with the movie, and I I I don't really think that's that wasn't American general. It wasn't American storyline, right? It wasn't an American soldier thing. It was just soldiers. I get that, but it's often. I mean, it was an American storyline. 
And so I think that's why they do that. And it's shot the way it's shot. And yeah. I, that's why I enjoy watching movies from other countries. Like South Korean war movies are quite amazing mm-hmm. to watch because the South Very Korean war absolutely. movies, those soldiers are the most elite of the soldiers, right? Um, anything else to add? Because I, I want to talk about courage. My takeaway in this is totally different this year than it ever was in the past. So anything else to add before we uh, move on to the courage part? Anybody? Takers? Nobody? All good? No, it's just a really good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Mm, absolutely, there's a reason why it won and, so many awards. Hey, Steve. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's all evident right there, and the fact that I mean, you can watch it any time, and I think it still resonates the same every time. Mm. It does. They did a great job. And it does on the leave tanks, you, by the way. It does. Yeah, it yeah, does. The tiger um, tank looks very good. It does. And leave, that was uh, the, it does leave you with feelings. And that was the movie used to test your DVD system back in the day, too. Yeah. Yeah, what a what an amazing show. When we watch this show, going into Remembrance Day, which the whole country will be officially kicking off here in just a little bit. If you're hearing this for the first time, it's it's the the story of what is courage. You see, you can't have bravery unless you have fear. The two must both be present. There's nobody in this world who is courageous without the possibility of fear and failure, right? You can't have bravery unless there's danger. And so when you look at these these soldiers, I think it's easy to look at these stories, uh, whether it's about, you know, whatever country, it doesn't matter. We look at them often and we say, how brave are these people to walk into these wars, flying bullets around, running around, trying to get home to their loved ones? And what I've taken away was the very, very end of the movie the very end of the movie when Private Ryan, the old Private Ryan, says to his wife, you know, tell me I did a good job. Tell me I earned this. And it, what I've learned from all of this is the power of silence. And I've said it here on the shift. And, I, you know, it's one of the biggest gifts these soldiers have given us, which wasn't very long ago. Fathers and grandfathers, Right. One of the biggest gifts they've ever given us was not telling us the stories and keeping them silent because the stories are gruesome. One of the best gifts they've ever given us is telling us the stories so we know how incredibly grounded we need to be when we look at all our lives every day. We complain about all things social media and all this crap. And how grounding is this that we don't go through because of what our family members and loved ones and community members went through, our our neighbors? So to me, what I've learned from Saving Private Ryan is less about the soldier that went into the war and more about the soldier that had the courage to go home. The courage it has taken to go into a war for a year, two years, three years is a level of courage I can only imagine. What I'm seeing now is the amount of courage it takes to walk back into your life, to walk back into your home, to look at your family members and not feel the same way, and not think the way that you did before you left. I think what I've realized this year with Remembrance Day, that it's possible that there's more courage to being a soldier who goes home and tries to live a life and raise babies and provide for their community every single day after going through what these people went through. That to me is truly what courage is. And if we look at Remembrance Day from that, lens with gratitude for the courage to go into it but wow you came home and then you lived a life 
And in some cases, which we'll find out later, you lived a life and you made amends with your captors. That's courage. I have a new, whole new definition of courage um, thanks to watching this movie again. This is The Shift Podcast. Here on The Shift, we wanted Remembrance Day to be an example of just learning and talking, just sharing stories and understanding what everybody's been through. That's why for the AV Club, we chose uh, movies that were based on real events. Now, fictional characters, all that stuff. Yes, it's still just a movie, but that's why we did. And I'm glad that we watched Saving Private Ryan. It allows us, that movie in particular does allow us that initial scene, right? The chaos in the beginning of it. For most of us, that's the first time we saw and understood that kind of chaos. What if we could look back at history from this lens of, wow, chaos really is the common thread to what's going on here. And that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation in our look, not just at the stories, but at maybe discovering something new and some insight. Tim Cook is a historian, Canadian War Museum. And I wish, Tim, we could just look back and say, hey, you're an expert on this one moment in time. There is such a long list of things that we have here. I think my biggest takeaway in learning about you and what you do is this is probably a conversation we should have more often, not just Remembrance Day, because there are so many stories that we just don't know. Uh, you know, Shane, thank, thanks for having me on. And I agree. Uh, I'm really lucky. I work at the War Museum. I get to uh, breathe this every day. Uh, it's an incredible job. And, um, you know, that's my day job. That's what pays the bills. But I also write about history. As you know, I write uh, uh, primarily about the, the two world wars. And I've always been fascinated by uh, the ordinary men and women who have served, um, who uh, in the two world wars who put down the um the pen who left the farm who left their loved ones and who went overseas uh, beyond our borders to to fight on behalf of canada for all canadians and uh um that those stories have always been very powerful for me um and i and i try to share them in my books People who lied about their age to go. My son's 16, and I think about that an awful lot these days. And this Remembrance Day is probably my biggest grounding rod is the notion that, you know, grandparents of ours lied at my son's age to go there and do that. I have this um, this new awakening this year after we watched Saving Private Ryan, which is uh, one of my favorite movies. I've seen it a million times. But what I the lens that I watched it from this time gave me this writing piece in my writing. The biggest gift that these warriors gave us was coming home and telling us their stories. And at the same time, the biggest gift these warriors gave us was coming home and not telling us the stories. And that seems to me to be the truth. How does that land with you? Yeah, there's, there's always a silence after war. And my most recent book, The Fight for History, where I, I write about and explore the, um, the strange way that we in Canada have not talked about the Second World War. That book is the, the third volume, as you know, in my, in my trilogy. And when I published the first two volumes 
1,100 pages epic story of Canadians, 1.1 million Canadians in the Second World War, fighting to defend North America, fighting on the oceans, fighting in multiple air campaigns, fighting in the Far East, fighting in Sicily, fighting at Dieppe uh, during the Italian campaign on D-Day, defending against the 12th SS counterattacks uh, in the days after D-Day, liberating the French, fighting uh, to clear the Scheldt, uh, liberating the Dutch. I mean, these incredible stories, and we didn't know about them. We didn't teach them in Canada, and that surprised me. And so I explored that in my book, The Fight for History. And one of the things I talk about there are those silences that, that you talk about, Shane, where I think we have a greater sense now with uh, especially our Afghanistan veterans who have come back and, and, and some of the things that they have seen and the challenges that they have faced in talking about those experiences. It was the same for those who served in the Cold War and in peacekeeping. It was the same for those who served in the Korean War or the 1.1 million from the Second War or the 620,000 who served in the Great War as well. And I think it is, as you said, maybe a bit of a blessing that we haven't been exposed to all that. And yet we need to know those stories. We need to know them so that we can understand our own history and we can understand what our great-grandparents or our grandparents or our fathers or our mothers have gone through. I used to have a Christmas music uh, online channel. It was called Christmas Canada Radio. It's a radio special that happens. But the online stream of Christmas music taught me about Canadian war history. Bear with me. I was shocked to see the sky-high tuning numbers of this Canadian music Christmas show in the Netherlands. I brought it up to my parents. I said, you know, there's tons in Germany, but it's like off the charts listening in the Netherlands. And my dad said, well, that's because of the war. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know how Canada, and I said, my dad's always taught me that, you know, the, uh, he always says Canada won the Second World War uh, because of the victories on the beaches and Canada's contribution to that. But he said it was Canadians who walked into the Netherlands. It was Canadians that were on the front of that, that march in to liberate the Netherlands. So to your point about learning in school, I learned about it because of an experience of interaction of music online. I didn't learn about that from school. Yeah, and, and this is something that concerns me. Uh, I'm sure it concerns you and many of your listeners. Uh, we need to do a better job in telling these stories in, in multiple places, in our schools, um, through our public discourse. Uh, and, and, you know, my book, The Fight for History, is about that. Why didn't we produce a Saving Private Ryan about the epic Canadian story? You know, okay, we may not have Spielberg and Tom Hanks here, but why haven't we produced multi- episode um, documentaries about the incredible contributions during the Second World War. Why didn't we build a national memorial to the Second World War? I recount that in my book, The Fight for History. The veterans came back in 1945 and they said, we accept Remembrance Day and we accept the poppy. Um, we would like our own national memorial. And the government of the day said no. And in fact, the government of the day denied uh, overseas memorials. Think of the power of Vimy or to maybe a lesser extent, Beaumont Hamel, these silent ambassadors. And yet multiple governments refused to build overseas memorials until veterans themselves 
um, you know, built the Juno Beach Center, uh, where they raised the money there. Uh, so, I mean, I've, I, I tell these stories, uh, the stories of the Dutch, to come back to your, your opening comment there. Canadians, if you go to the Netherlands, you will be greeted um, for what our grandparents did, which was to be the sharp edge of the spear in driving the Nazis out of occupying, well, of course, France, Belgium, but especially the Dutch. And by liberating the Dutch um, in first in late 1944, about half the country, and then again in April and May of 45, where the country was starving to death, literally weeks away from mass death by starvation, and yet still thousands died from starvation. It was the Canadians that marched in. It was the Canadians that drove out the Germans and brought food. And it is the Canadians who were welcomed as liberators in 1945. And now, more than 75 years later, you will still, um, if you're a Canadian, perhaps not be seen as a liberator, but certainly thanked for what our grandparents did. Uh, there is that new show that I can't help but bring up. That I think it was Forgotten Battle on Netflix, which talks about this um, in its own, you know, fictional f story way uh, based on real facts. So give that a look if you want to learn more about that. Let's switch gears here because we have so many places we can go. And part of this conversation that's really come to light for me personally, plus I think in general in the media, is Hong Kong POWs. Um, that's come to light. We even had a, a one of our shift head nighttime listeners make a comment about, oh, yeah, my grandpa was there, too, also from just outside Winnipeg, which my dad said to me was the Grenadiers. So um, that's another untold story of all of this. Yeah, it is, Shane. And, of course, Canada uh, sent about 2,000 soldiers to uh, the colony, the then British colony, to help hold it against Japanese aggression. Uh, it was called Sea Force. It consisted of Royal Rifles of Canada and Winnipeg Grenadiers and, and then other support uh, forces. And they were uh, they were attacked at Hong Kong when the Japanese uh, attacked on the 7th of December 1941 at Pearl Harbor. And it's interesting. It, again, I talk about this in my book, The Fight for History, that most Canadians know about Pearl Harbor. We have an image of that. Partially, it's perhaps the not great Ben Affleck film and others. But of course, it's just, it's a, we can all envision the, the, the ships on fire there. Yep. And yet Canada had 2000 soldiers under attack that very same day. They were in the face of uh, this uh, Japanese division that was attacking the forces there. Um, the battle went on until the 25th of December 1941, where uh, Canadians, British uh, and other forces surrendered. The Canadians fought uh, gallantly. And I, I write about this in my book. Uh, there are not a lot of records from that time since uh, everyone was captured. And yet uh, Japanese official sources, uh, which I uh, looked at and had translated uh, partially for my book, The Necessary War, Every time they talked about harsh fighting, resolute defenders, it was the Canadians. And yet the story that we talk about with the Battle of Hong Kong is, is often not that battle. Um, we, we focus on the prisoner of war experience, which was uh, horrendous. And I think if, if listeners could know what happened there, it would make their stomach uh, turn. The, the Japanese were a cruel 
uh, brutal oppressors who systematically starved the Allied prisoners, and I'll just focus on the Canadians here, um, the Canadians suffer, suffered uh, just unimaginable beatings and torture and executions. Every single one of them was suffering from malnourishment and disease. And uh, when they were finally freed in 1945, uh, more than 250 of them had died in that cruel, cruel um, prisoner of war camps. And I recount in the fight for history how when the survivors came back, um, they were largely ignored by the government, um, that they had to fight for pensions. They had to fight for recognition. And uh, I've been very lucky to speak to some Hong Kong veterans in, in my long career as a military historian. And, um, you know, they spoke often stoically and, and bravely of what they had been through, but also with some bitterness some bitterness because the Japanese government really refused to offer any official apology. Uh, and that, um, in fact, many of these um, soldiers um, died before the Canadian state gave them proper pensions. And it's a, it's a sad story. It's one we, we do need to talk about. And um, I, I've always felt that those particular veterans um, the, the 2,000 who went, the 15 or 100 or so who survived the battle and the prisoner of war camp experience, they deserve to have their story told. I have to say, though, Tim, I'm at a bit of a loss, right? I feel like the story needs to be told. How do we tell the story? And when we look at all things political, I'm not going to get political right now. We see these patterns with Canadian history about people getting shunned out by the government and not getting recognized. And there seems to be so many fights, you know, from the past in Canada right now. How is it that we can go now at the, at the, the war museum where you are? I mean, that is the Canadian war museum. It's huge. It's got everything. Not everybody can get to Ottawa to see it. So like, how do we do this, Tim? Like, how do we, we can't do this one day a year. And how do we do it where we can get this story told most of these people are gone and you could even go as far as say all the good storytellers are gone now. So who's going to tell the story? Like we missed our window, if you will. So how do we pull this off? Like we have to take responsibility for it and we've got to do it, but how do we do it? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, as I wrote in the fight for history as a kind of core level, as I was looking at the, for 50 years, how we had largely ignored the story of the Second World War, uh, I, I do argue that we've done a better job over the last 25 years. We've done a better job by writing better history books, by encouraging veterans to tell their stories. There have been oral history projects to capture their voices. At the War Museum, uh, where I work, we, we have an oral history program where we have interviewed veterans for over 20 years and continue to do so. All veterans, not just Second World War veterans. But there have also been um, significant uh, failures, I think. And just to come back to what we talked about before, that there, that we've never been able to make a feature film. Films have a real impact on how people think about wars. I remember teaching at Carleton years ago and everybody had seen, you'd mentioned it earlier, Saving Private Ryan. It's a great, not only a great film, but a great discussion point to get into many parts of the war experience as other films can help as well. Um, but we, it's a struggle. And in the fight for history, I wrote and I said, 
don't expect the Americans or the British or the French or the Germans to tell our story. It's up to us. Um, we need to do that. And when we don't, it's a self-inflicted wound because, um, frankly, no one else will care if we let our history wither away. And we simply um, must continue to work at it. There's no silver bullet here. And, and even if tomorrow someone could make a feature film, uh, like Paul Gross had made for the First World War, his Passchendaele film, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't reach every single person. And so it has to happen on multiple fronts, uh, through education, through uh, discussions, through podcasts, through um, books, through listening to veterans, um, and to perhaps uh, approach the history with a sense of um, openness and honesty. I, I'm not calling for heroic history. I'm not calling for stand behind the flag, hand over your heart history. History can be hard. Um, it, it's not always uh, the good. Uh, we must address all aspects of it, but um, it, it can be challenging. And, and I think we're a grown-up country, um, and, and we should embrace and talk about um, both the heroics and the horror, the incredible eye-watering bravery as, of service uh, and, and the harsher parts of war. And I think when we do that collectively, uh, we create it, maybe move it away from the margins back to the center a little bit. So at the Canadian War Museum, you go in to work. Well, maybe not these days always, but sometimes you go into work or you used to go into work <laughs> through COVID. Um, and you, you see all of these things in front of you. Is there one place that you go inside that museum, one story, one battle, one experience that every time you still come to that? I mean, you're a historian. You've been in front of this stuff your whole career. Is there still one place where you can go to in there where you just it doesn't escape you, where you're just like, I can't I still can't believe it. Right. Is, is there one little piece of all this that still impresses you, if that's the right word? Well, there's a lot that that affects me that has an impact on me that i that can move me to tears that can uh create great moments of pride i was the curator 20 years ago for the first world war gallery and um there, there is a small artifact in there that i'll uh, that i'll tell you about but uh but first i'll just say that um at the war museum one of the things i love to do is to walk it every single day and you're right with COVID, we've been closed, open, closed, open, closed, open, and, and still open now. Um, and I love to see um, our visitors exploring the history and, uh, you know, grandparents talking to grandkids and parents talking to their children. And they can, they'll be pointing out something at Battle of Vimy Ridge or the Medak pocket in 1993 or Canada's commitment in Afghanistan or the Plains of Abraham or Brock's coat with a bullet hole through the chest where he died at the Plains, uh, uh, sorry, at Queenston Heights. Um, and, and they're just stunning artifacts from the largest tanks to the smallest one. And the smallest one is the one maybe I'll tell you about, uh, which is a little teddy bear. And it was a teddy bear given to Lawrence Rogers. He was about 38, 39 years old when he enlisted, which was pretty ancient in the First World War where the soldiers were supposed to be between 19 and about 40. Uh, and he went overseas and his daughter Eileen gave him this little, little teddy bear to keep him safe and to, um, so that he would remember his uh, daughter Eileen, who was 10 at the time, and, and her brother. 
and he served overseas as uh, as a sergeant um, in the uh, Canadian Army Medical Corps, saving the lives of, of Canadian soldiers. He was commissioned as an officer. And during the Battle of Passchendaele in October and November of 1917, in that horrific battlefield to the east of Ypres in Flanders, where the mud was thigh deep and the unburied corpses, he was carrying for uh, a soldier when a shell exploded over him and uh, he was killed. Um, and his body uh, was found by his comrades and they took this little teddy bear off and they sent it home. They buried him on the battlefield and like so many Canadian soldiers, his body was lost, uh, destroyed by shell fire or the grave was uh, knocked down. And his name is on the Vimy Memorial for, for the, uh, sorry, on the Menin Gate uh, for with another 7,000 Canadians who died in, uh, in Flanders fields. And that teddy bear came back to his family and they held it for 90 years. And, and it's only, you know, 10, 15 centimeters in size and the legs have fallen off over the last uh, 100 years. And yet that teddy bear represents so much. It represents uh, a father who went off to war and never returned. It represents um, a family that had to deal with an absent father and the grief and the mourning that they felt. And it represents generations that had this teddy bear passed down to them. Uh, each generation hearing those stories, each generation feeling the loss of a father and then a grandfather and then a great grandfather. And I spoke to that family in, in early 2000, and they gave me the teddy bear. Um, we gave the War Museum the teddy bear, and we put it on display. And it, it seems to me to be one of those very powerful artifacts. And there are many others like it that encapsulate so many uh, moving stories of how Canadians have served this country and have paid that terrible price. And it is in a little teddy bear, and I encourage your listeners to, to come to Ottawa at some point, have that opportunity to see it, and it's uh, prominently displayed. And for me, it always sends uh, shivers uh, down my spine. When you said about how movies resonate, uh, that's very true. And nobody else will tell our story, and we have to. That's very true. But I can also tell you that there's your movie script. Wow. Uh, it's beautiful. Tim Cook is with the Canadian War Museum. He's an author. Uh, check out the books. Uh, check out the museum. The Necessary War uh, is there. Tim Cook. It's a soldier black and white cover with red on the font. And it's amazing. Tim, uh, I feel like it's a little bit out of line, but I want to say it anyway. Like I, like I don't have a place, but I guess as a Canadian, I can. I could just say thanks for your hard work. Um, your storytelling even today makes me feel... Uh, emotions and and I'm moved and um, as I get older I start to realize through time how incredibly valuable this information is in understanding who we are today in a society around the world that seems a little bit lost it sure is a great grounding rod to make us realize how hard so many people have worked and I thank you for for your hard work thanks very much This is the Shift Podcast. There is an instrument that is deeply misunderstood. 
that we hear at special events and we hear it all the time. When someone starts playing the bagpipes in your neighborhood, everybody knows what it is. You're like, oh, there's a guy playing bagpipes. And let's be honest, when someone knows how to play the bagpipes, it's beautiful. And when somebody's learning, it's hard to listen to. That's how difficult these instruments are to play. Now, I grew up playing the saxophone. So when I blew air into a saxophone, it made noise. I don't know if I could ever play the bagpipes because it's kind of the opposite. You fill the bladder with air and then you make noise and the pattern is so different. So joining us to help us understand, I think, the history of this and why it's important. Michael Gray is the president of the Piper's Pipe Band Society, uh, Pipe and Band Society, Piper's and Band Society. Oh, I got it wrong again. Piper's and Pipe Band Society in Ontario. Holy moly, Michael Gray, thanks so much for being here, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here, Shane. And uh, I think I always uh, advise any piper I know that we're missionaries at heart. And one of our uh, one of the tasks you take on when you learn the instrument is to um, go out to the masses and educate people about pipes. It goes with yeah. the territory. Well, there's not really a way to play them quietly, is there? No, they've got one. It's one volume fits all. It's a really interesting instrument in that. There's no rest as in other kinds of music, like in saxophone playing. You could rest for the bagpipe because it's blown under the arm. There's a continuous, the music is legato. So it's continuous and it moves along. And, uh, and because there's no dynamics and there's only nine notes, if you don't count the drones, which are two notes on their own, bass and tenor, uh, there's only, so it's an octave plus one note. So you really do rely hugely on finger technique. Um, so there's a huge array of complex grace noting and combinations of grace noting that create figures and embellishments that in turn create rhythms and music. Mm -hmm. Why the history of the bagpipe? I mean, if ever you were to look at an instrument today that only gets utilized for one thing, and that's typically at ceremonies, it's not like some other instruments that we see from wartime with bugles and trumpets and so on. It seems like the bagpipes have one purpose. And I, the only thing I can think of, and I'm out of my lane here, Michael. I absolutely am. And so it is an honest question. The hit, That tells me that the history of the bagpipe as an instrument, as a symbol, is more important than anything. Because some of these other instruments, like drums and all the other things that are associated with some of these storylines, you know, they have other purposes. This one seems to really have just that symbolism of those very special moments. So what's the history? Why does it matter so much? So I, I'm going to push back. It's not, it, I, well, I'll acknowledge that it has become a symbol. It's so much more than that. And to touch on your earlier comments around sound, if I can just, you know, talk about my own experience, it was the sound, the sound of the instrument that drew me to it as a kid. Uh -huh. um, yes, you know, Scottish parentage and, and all that. And there was a, a piper in our, the family's orbit that um, I heard. Um, but it was a sound that um, I, I hesitate to say racial memory, I'll say ancestral memory mm -hmm. um, that uh, triggered something in me. And I just had to play that thing. And, uh, and I certainly didn't hear it in the context of any, any ceremony. I heard it, um, you know, at a family cottage in the Eastern townships of Quebec. That's where I first heard the, remember hearing the pipes. Um, so, you know, the, the pipes have become, because they're loud and they draw attention by virtue of their loudness. And by the way, I, I don't want to 
you know, misrepresent the loudness of it, and you all know how loud it is. The, the pipe can, when it's fully intoned, can uh, emit and usually does emit around 115 decibels, which is in line with the pneumatic drill. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a whole, many pipers nowadays will play with earplugs in. Um, so that alone creates, I think, it, it calls attention to itself and can be heard over loud environments. So for instance, go back to um, your earlier reference to wartime use. So, you know, it was used at Culloden in 1746, that terrible battle that went poorly for the Scots. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was used, so you, you know, each clan would have their own uh, piece of music and latterly in the, in the uh, you know, when the Highland regiments were adopted by the British army, when things became smoother between uh, England and Scotland, each regiment would have its own tune that read, that people in the regiment could recognize. And that's still like that to this day. Uh, regiments like uh, it, it, we, Canada is full of Highland regiments, 40 Highlanders of which I was a member as a, as a teenager, uh, you know, the... Um, the Ark Island Sutherland Highlanders, Highlanders, the Seaforth Highlanders, the Calgary Highlanders, uh, you know, there's loads of Highland regiments, each with their own piece of music. However, I'm, I'm uh, because there's so much to be said here, Shane, um, I digress. The pipes are, um, are, are they, I think what makes them special beyond the volume they create and the symbol that they've, um, that has, you know, has evolved around their presence in battle and ceremonies of, of great solemnity and great joy, which by the way, I think is a, as a special note, you don't get that with a banjo or accordion. You're mm-hmm. going to get a bagpipe on Remembrance Day and you're going to get it at f- funerals and high state occasions. And you're going to get it at a wedding, the happiest day of a bride or groom's life and playing down the aisle or at the church or it's someplace in the ceremony. So it's, it's very lamentful and it's got a huge dance music uh, canon of tunes associated with it. It's so integral though. That's the thing, right? It's um, and so when you describe it, how it's sort of woven in your DNA, like it just sort of is part of you. Now my background is not quite the same, but at the same time, I would have to say that, it really is a call to attention, right? Like it really does, aside from the volume and the unique sound, it does get your it does get your attention, but there's a part to it which just makes you feel like you know it. Now, maybe a nature-nurture conversation of philosophy, <laughs> but uh, it is so integral today, still today, so integral at these events. I can't imagine, Michael, an event, like if you went to a Remembrance Day event, I can't imagine going there and just not having a, a Piper play. Yeah, and I can't either. And I think the other, the, the, it does lend itself to, um, just as it lends itself to dance music, I don't want it like jigs and reels and stress bays. Like these are, these are, you know, you see Highland dancers and then you got step dancers and this is all dance music. I think it's the drone, the drone of the bagpipe, the bass drone, that's the big drone. And the two other drones, the tenor drones, they, they're tuned to the chanter. But those drones create a beautiful harmonic when tuned uh, with the chanter. That is just, um, you know, it's like a chord on a piano or a chord on a, an accordion there. I, I love the accordion, by the way. 
by the way, here's today's top tip. If you ever feel a little bit depressed, a little down, put on a Scottish dance band. That's an accordion band. You will be happy within minutes. Okay, so can you give me a band name? Sure. Um, how about, um, they're not pure dance band, but uh, Scary Vore or the Vaudersay Boys. Okay, got it. But yeah, cheer you up big time. So I think the drone is is really, um, you know, it's like this big pad of, you know, sound that uh, if, if anyone uh, could see me now, they would see me with hands like on a keyboard, like a mm -hmm. pad, a keyboard pad. Like on a... Anyways, um, that's, I think that's integral to the sound. And, but also to your point earlier about, you know, is it nature, nurture, and, you know, well, I don't think it is nurture because I would say to you, how is it that, and beyond any colonialism or politics, how is it that in uh, parts of India and Pakistan and North Africa, Algeria, in the Middle East, there's pipe bands. These, there's pipe bands. You just go on Google and you can, Indian Army bagpipe championships. There you'll, be, you'll get some incredible um, stylings there. But they love the pipes, these folks. And I think their DNA is probably, you know, um, those 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 people in that part of the world are, are much further away from um, the original uh, s music of the instrument as envisioned by you know the people who were first you know in the highlands of Scotland who developed it because also I should say it's it's not really it's a Scottish thing now but the great Highland bagpipe came from a part of Scotland it's uh, uh, it's the, really represents the voice of the Gael. It's it's born of Gaelic speakers or Gaelic speakers, as we as usually said in Canada, and it came from those people. It didn't come from people who spoke English. So the music represents that language to a great extent, and uh, I think that's of note. It doesn't. The Great Highland Bagpipe, as it's officially known in uh, musicology circles, wasn't something that came out of um, uh, the coal mining areas in uh airshire mm -hmm. it's interesting um i mean the makeup of the bagpipe the uh, all the parts that are in it and all those things do you ever wonder or maybe you've looked it up you probably know it like it is a little strange when we look at all the things that humans do for the first time right like cow's milk whose bright idea was that who, who went hey i bet <laughs> you that's good right like strange but when you look at all the parts of a bagpipe with the bladder and all of those things do you ever wonder uh, whose idea was like, hey, I bet you I can make music out of those guts. Like, and then, it's, of course, it's turned into this beautiful instrument that we have today. Well, that's good of you to say. But you're right. It is. It's. I mean, it evolved. It evolved out of. I think it, it came from. Uh, it's. It's peasant music, and you know, it 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 made its way to the uh, highlands and islands of Scotland via you know the Celtic streams that went through Europe. You know. And uh, because there's bagpipes in every part of Europe, they got, you know, Zamponia in, in Italy, Southern Italy, and you've got the Gaida in, uh, which is a huge part of Bulgarian music, a type of Gaida, and you've got another Gaida in Greece, uh, all bagpipes. And then, of course, you've got the Illin pipes in Ireland, and then the Northumbrian pipes in England. There's all these, these bagpipes. And I think, you know, maybe shepherds in high in the hills would have time in their hands to, and so maybe some uh, sheepskins laying around that they could, you know, sew into bags and 
jam on who knows what was in on their mind um so yeah i i don't know um I, I, certainly the the amazing thing about this instrument and the music is that it has been so developed to such a level there's a there's an element of bagpipe music that most people never hear um it's called it's called in uh, pipers call it pibrock which is uh gallic for just the translation is pipering just what you do playing the pipes but pibrock music in in p-i-b-r-o-c-h in the anglicized form is classical music and it's set each piece of music lasts anywhere from nine to 25 minutes. Wow. It's based on a theme and it builds. And this was, this came out of an illiterate people, a people that did not write right. from the, the, the Gales of Scotland. And just to give you a sense of, um, of the importance of this music, Felix Mendelssohn, the great 19th century um, composer of, you know, Western classical music as generally conceived today traveled to Scotland. He wrote the Hebridean Overture, if I'm not mistaken. And he also said that um, that one piece of this P-Rock music or big music in another, it's also known as the big music for obvious reasons or, or in Gaelic Kilmore. Um, it, the first, he said the first line of this piece of music called Lament for the Children was the finest single line music in all European music. And I'll just give you the first uh, couple of bars of it. Yeah. And that's how it starts. I don't want to give you a recital on it. This, This thing that I just played is called a practice chanter. And when you learn the bagpipe, you spend about a year on this little um it's a little uh looks like a recorder yeah and it's mouth blown it's got a, now it's got a plastic reed and you would uh, learn all that needs to be learned the thing too about a bagpipe is um music is generally unless you're doing studio work and we all know how busy pipers are in the studio unless <laughs> you're doing studio work um which does happen um every piece of music that you play is memorized including those long Pibrock tunes I was describing. They're all memorized. And Pipers are big competitors. They compete against each other. And there's a whole subculture that's probably beyond the extent of this conversation today, Shane, to tell you about crazy competitive Pipers. That's great, though. It's so cool. I mean, to hear, nobody nobody ever tells this story, Michael. No one ever tells the story about what it's like to do that. I didn't even know about... Uh, the instrument that you had there to practice on, which was one of my questions, was how in the world do you practice and get to that place where you sound like you know what you're doing um, as opposed to, because I don't know if you have kids, I have kids, so when my kids learn how to play saxophone and all those things, like that's, and any parent who's had a kid try to play a clarinet, like that is not a fun experience, right? The first couple of years. And so how do you get there? And you've answered that too. It's it's so remarkable, and I would like to just acknowledge that when you played it there, it immediately takes you to a place. Like, it it literally does. Maybe it's a favorite TV show. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a memory. Uh, maybe it is, as you describe it, something that's just deeply woven inside you. But when you hear that sound, it literally just takes you to a place. And it's this magical thing. Like, even, even if you're sitting outside 
So you and I are sitting outside having a beer. It's summertime. It's hot outside. A couple blocks away, someone breaks up the bagpipes for maybe an event. Maybe it's a backyard wedding. Maybe it's just someone practicing. Nobody, nobody doesn't notice, and nobody doesn't go, oh, bagpipes, right? Like everybody says the same thing. Everybody's experienced, no matter where you're from. It all comes down to that same place. Well, you know what? That's funny you say that because you trigger another of my, um, uh, you know, I've, I, again, as I've said, I'm a bagpipe missionary. So I often, you, you just, no one shrugs at a bagpipe, which is sort of another way of saying what you just said. It has presence and it, it provokes, I'm going to say evokes, but it, sometimes it provokes emotion and you get, um, so therefore for me, bagpipes are high art. You know, you don't, no one ever shrugs at a great piece of art. They either they swoon over it or they get angry about it. And that's a bagpipe. You know, yeah. you get people throwing rocks and, and air horns if they don't like the bagpipes and calling the cops. You know, yeah. I've had it happen more than once in my life. Not the uh, rock. Yeah. Uh, Michael Gray, do you have plans to play this week? Are you a part of any ceremonies? You know what? I'm not. Uh, the ceremonies are, are generally... Um, fewer than they would normally be i think due to uh covid but no i'm not i i don't uh, have any plans but i will remember as um as will most of us i think and a note on that did you know while we're talking about bagpipes that in world war one they're in the uh, commonwealth there are approximately 2500 pipers in that participated in and served in world war one and almost a thousand of them died oh i didn't know that not great odds, no. not great odds. And no. because of that, um, and the last Pipers, just to, to, um, to sort of move along that story, it's, it's the last Pipers to play um, legally was in North Africa in 1942 at the Battle of El Elamine. And there were losses there. And the war office in the, in the UK uh, made a... Um, a rule that pipers would no, no longer uh, be involved in, in live battles until D-Day 1944. And Lord Lovett, this is, you'll, you might, anyone that's seen the movie, the old movie, The Longest Day, Lord Lovett, who was a very famous uh, British, well, one of the largest landholders in the United Kingdom, but also a war hero. He um, uh, took his personal piper, Bill Millen, Millen, M-I-L-L-I-N, and had him play on the beaches of Normandy in a kilt. And the only weapon he had was a skindu, which is the black knife. That's Gallic for the black knife, which is in the sock. And he played throughout the uh, proceedings at, uh, on Nor at Normandy. And the Germans la later said they didn't shoot at him because they thought he was insane. Crazy wow. man. Crazy man. And uh, when Bill Millen said to Lord, Lord Lovett, um, to the, the boss, uh, you know, the war office says we're not supposed to have pipes. And he says, well, that's the English war office. We're the Scots. So that was his, uh, his way around that. Yeah. And such is the, uh, the ongoing politics of the UK, which is uh, kind of neat to hear too. Um, really cool stuff. Michael Gray, president, the Pipers and Pipe Band Society of Ontario. Uh, thanks for sharing your love and insight on the bagpipes with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for the time.
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.